the life cycle analysis tool. You, there, you can use this for a lot of different things. I mean, like, man, it was a rough week for the Bruins. Like, it was a rough week for Boston to start off. I mean, like, they went from, like, booming, like, you, like accelerating to booming to, like, I mean, that was a quick deceleration and tanking. Um, the Red Sox, on the other hand, though, like, after a slow start, we might say they're kind of in the booming category. You guys with me on that? One eight in a row, the C's up 2-1, um, you know? So, I mean, we get those sports things. We could talk the weather. Like, there's a lot, there's a, you know, let's give it up for, like, today. Like, I love some first time on a Sunday, short sleeves. I wish I could bottle up this feeling and, all right, um, but hey, let's go, let's go technology. We'll choose DVDs. Like we could just map this on a timeline, right? Where would you put DVDs in the booming category? I mean, right now they're definitely like decelerating and tanking. Like the reason I bring up DVDs, I had a conversation with somebody the other day and they were like, hey, I could share DVDs with you. And I did not realize that DVDs were still made. I'm, I'm just kidding, guys. But like, you know, you got, you got so many streaming platforms that there are actual DVDs. Ava, Owen, Zoe, we'll talk about what those are, you know. But like you can see this, this like at one point they were booming. Everybody like, you got Blu-ray, you keep going. And, and now... That's the case. What about businesses? I don't know if you guys like, heard recently, Bed Bath & Beyond, right? What are they doing? Like, everything, I think, is being shut down. At one point in time, you could talk about a business from, like, a booming category to then decelerating and tanking. Like, in your mind, what would be some other businesses right now that you would say are booming? Tesla? Okay. Amazon, thank you, Zoe. I mean, just think about that. Like, you see this all the time, things that accelerate. You've got a bunch of startups. I know maybe some of you might be a part of startups, hoping that we're going to get in that booming category, and then it goes to decelerating, to tanking. Here's a question I want you to wrestle with. How do businesses avoid decelerating and tanking? And I'll just acknowledge there are a lot of things that are maybe outside of your control. Like, like a lot of businesses may have boomed during COVID, but others might have tanked. And th that was things outside of their control. You're like, where am I going with this? If you had to plot the Thessalonians, where would you throw them? I mean, from my perspective, like as we've studied First Thessalonians, like they're one of the most positive, encouraging letters that Paul's written to. I mean, it's not Galatians, it's not First Corinthians. Like I would say, at least they're in high accelerating. Or anybody want to put booming? I mean, think about some of the terms we've heard already in First Thessalonians. Like he starts off in chapter one. What does he say there? He's he's praying for them. He's giving thanks to them. And give me one second here. And he says, we give thanks to God for, for you constantly mentioning our prayers, remembering before God your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope. He continues on. Hey, faith, your faith has sounded forth all over Macedonia. You've become examples. Hey, we've heard back from Timothy. 
And what's Timothy told us? Hey, Timothy says this. He, he's come to us, has brought us news, the good news of your faith and love. We could make a strong argument that the church was, was really taking off and that they were booming. Which makes these next three verses so shocking to me. That a church that would be booming, that Paul would pray this. And so before we read that, here's why this is important. As you're looking at that picture there, you may say, man, I'm like brand new to Jesus and Christianity. And I want to say, that's great news because this speaks to you today. You look at that and you're like, man, I'm booming. Paul is going to speak to you today. You may look at that and say, man, I might be on the decelerating and tanking. This is for you today. And there's no doubt that we've, in these first three chapters, wrestled with and heard and seen Paul's heart for the Thessalonians. I mean, he was a part of seeing this church planted, and then because of persecution, he was driven out, and that's why they sent Timothy. He's like, dude, I, when we couldn't take it any longer, we sent Timothy. We wanted to hear how you were doing. And Timothy comes back, and he shares the good news. And how did we finish last week in verse 10? We finished last week in chapter 3, verse 10, with Paul saying this, And as we pray most earnestly, night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. And that's where we pick up today. Paul longing to see them face to face. And so 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, we're going to look at three verses today, 11, 12, and 13. The Word of God says this. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. What we have here is the conclusion to the whole first section of 1 Thessalonians. He begins with a prayer of thanksgiving, and now he's wrapping this section up with a prayer of thanksgiving. When we pick up in chapter 4, he's going to start more direct exhortations to them. But for the most part, he's celebrated, he's praised them, and we've gotten an inner, like, a view into the inner heart and soul and ministry of Paul longing to be with these people. But what we also have in this prayer is that he is going to give us a foreshadowing of some of the key topics that he's going to address in the rest of the letter. And so before we dig into to this prayer, I want to share a few just big picture observations here. And the first one that I want you to draw your attention to is to just ask this, who is he directing his prayer to? Verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. Who is he asking that, that might direct his way to them? Who's he asking? He says our Father and our Lord Jesus. Did you catch that? 
He, he basically puts Jesus on par with the Father. I mean, our vision this year in Boston as in heaven, you guys know this prayer. Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray. Father in heaven, hallowed be in our name. Like, it would not have been, like, Jesus is now there with Father? Our Father and Jesus? This is one of the earliest prayers we have here of the, of the language of prayer, including not just the Father, but the Son. And as a result, we see their unity. He, together, Father and Jesus direct our way. They're working together to accomplish that will in Paul's life. And then what type of prayer does he pray? We see this in verse 11. Now may our God, and then verse 12, and may the Lord. Last week, Tanner mentioned um, an acronym for prayer. Who remembers it? What's it called? Say it out loud. Acts. It's okay to talk back to me. All right. Acts. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Where does this fit? Probably the supplication. Like, I'm making specific requests to God for you. It's a wish prayer. God, would you do these things? I want you to do these things in their lives. And so, while these prayers are directed toward God, they have an implicit exhortation and encouragement for each one of us. Paul would not pray something to God that he wouldn't also tell them, what I'm praying for God, you need to open up your life to because I'm asking God to do this in your life. And then that leads us to the content of the prayer we see there are two explicit requests, right? Look at verse 11. Now may our Lord, may our God, our Father, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. That's the first request. God, direct us to them. The second request, verse 12, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love. So direct our way to you, would you make us increase and abound in love? And then in verse 13, we have a, um, a purpose clause. Do you see the so that? Here's why I'm praying this. I'm praying these two requests so that this might happen. And he says, so that, verse 13, he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before God and Father at the coming of of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Direct our way to you. God, direct our way to you. God, would you make love increase and abound and overflow? And then God, would you strengthen their commitment to holiness so that they might be found blameless when Jesus returns? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through all three of these. And just unpack those. And I believe there are three challenges, three truths for us to wrap our minds around, hearts around today. And the first one is this. In light of that first, like, would, would you direct our way to you? It's this. Trust that God is sovereign over Satan's schemes. Why couldn't Paul be with them? What do he say in chapter 2? Chapter 2, verse 18. He says this. Verse 
I'll start in verse 17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored to more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. And we talked about that. But here's something like good for us to just wrestle with here. Like as he's praying, God, would you direct our way? This is not a general prayer for guidance. Like Paul doesn't need Google Maps or Waze. It's like he knows where they're at. I need Waze all the time. It's a specific request. It's as if he's saying to God, shatter the obstacles raised by Satan or show me a way through these obstacles. There's no doubt Satan's been at work. And you know what? We probably don't think on this as often as we should. But, but there's a spiritual war that is going on all around us. I'm, I'm probably hesitant to say, hey, that's the work of Satan because it's hard for me really to know. But we know how Satan works. And so maybe you're even sensing in your life that, that there's some spiritual warfare or the work of Satan that's really hindering something that God is wanting to do, I've got some encouragement for you. This verse teaches us, and I, I'm going to share a few sentences here from, uh, from a commentary that I gathered. It says this, Satan's havoc extends only as far as God's hand allows Satan is on a leash. Do you hear that? Satan is on a leash. And though in a fallen world, this leash can feel really long, there's an infinitely wise hand at the end of it. He is for you in Christ. He who refused to spare even his own son is for you, and he will thwart your enemy's ultimate goals, bending them instead for your ultimate good. And if you have any question about this, go read through the book of Job. There's no doubt that even Satan's tactics are underneath God's sovereign hand and control in this life. And so when we are experiencing what we may feel like spiritual warfare, what should we do? Yes, we should look to God and we should pray and do exactly what Paul does here. God, may our God and Father direct our way to you. Did you know that God answered this prayer? As far as we know, it was about five years later. Go to read Acts 20. And he actually, verses 1 through 4, spends time with them in Thessalonica. Five years So we pray, we keep praying, and we look to God and we trust. Even though that leash may feel really long and Satan's continuing to hinder, God, we trust you're in control. And we're going to continue to seek your face. The second encouragement I want us to see here is this from verse 11. Overflow in love for others, both inside and outside the church. You remember our life cycle analysis tool? They're booming. We've heard about your labor of love. Timothy's told us the good news of your faith and your love. And so God, 
would you make it increase? Like, that's astonishing to me that, like, like yes, they can celebrate, Paul's celebrating, but then he's begging God for even any, for much more. God, increase, make it abound, make it overflow. Do you, do you feel this tension in the Christian life? Like we, we read of the New Testament and we hear it described as a walk, as a journey. And we hear this call to perseverance, to run and make it to the end. And say, so look, if you are just beginning to accelerate, do you know what Paul would say? I pray that you would abound more and more in love. If you're booming like the Thessalonians, God, would you make it abound and increase more and more. Celebrate evidences of God's grace, but don't let that lead you to become complacent. Notice the progress of this prayer. He says, make you increase and abound. And so th there's a reason here. I've got my coffee mug. It's not that I just wanted to sip and shout out to Southeastern, fulfill the mission. This is my favorite coffee mug here. What, what image comes to your mind when you think of overflowing? I mean, has, have any of you ever like done the Keurig and hit like, you had the smaller cup, but you chose like the 16 ounce option and like, and who's there? Just like, that. Yeah, I said, look, that's, you're with me. Like, you're like overflowing. I've got you, Keurig. Or like you put too much creamer in because you wanted that type of coffee and then like but that and the Keurig, you're like doubly overflowing. That's maybe like the hot Keurig coffee, you probably don't want that overflowing on you, but you get the picture. Maybe I could have brought up here a glass of water and, and just like started pull, pouring. And he's, he's praying, would you make it increase? To the point of overflowing. Do you get the picture here? Like, it's more than enough. It's in a super abundance. It's, it's an abounding beyond the, the limits. It's, it's a love that is exceedingly great and overflowing. Wherever you're at, in your love for God and others, abound even more. Our vision is that we would be sent out with an urgent love. Like when we talk about the 755,000 people in the surrounding towns that many have never heard had a chance to respond to Jesus, it's going to be urgent, abounding, overflowing love that's going to lead us to them. Let me give you a few observations about this overflowing love. First of all, this is a work of God. That's why he doesn't just charge them love, like a command. He turns to God. God, would you make them increase? Like, ju just think about that for a second. Sacrificial love is not natural to fallen humans. I don't wake up in my, like, flesh and say, man, I... I want to die to myself and go like give everything to other people today. 
I think about I love myself and I'm structuring my day so that I've got a great day. You know what's natural in my flesh? I love John Chesty. Think about what's at stake if your love doesn't abound and overflow. Either love for God and others will abound and overflow or love for self will. It's not as if, oh, yeah, no, I'm I'm all set. That's Boston for us, all set. I want to preach a sermon series one day called All Set, T. Just like take that. Um, I'm all set. No, like it's not like you can just choose. I'm not going to overflow and abound in love. You're either going to overflow for self or others and God. What we need is God to conquer our selfish hearts. You can only love this way when you experience the love of God. That's why we started earlier. I mean, we're like, who is God? He is merciful. He's abounding in steadfast love. He is the one that, that teaches me, not just, but experientially, how to love when I experience his love. This is what 1 John 4, 7 says. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. You cannot abound and overflow in love for others if you do not experience the love of God. Sacrificial love flows out of a heart and life that's been transformed by God. And it's a gift Think about this. Um, When we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love. The fruit of what? The Spirit. It's it's the Spirit's work. It's a gift. It's, It's what God produces in me by the work of His Spirit. And so we need God to work in our hearts for this to happen, but I want you to re- remember this, and we're going, we're going to talk about the tensions here, but um, God's working in me. It's a gift, but it's also a command. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor. But God, I, I need you. Yes, one of the verses that helps me wrap my head around this is Philippians 2, 12 and 13. It says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only is it my presence, but much more my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Who is it? And you. You work it out, but you work it out as God is working in you. This is God's transforming grace in our life. So know this, as you hear this prayer, God, would you help them to abound? Would you make them, as you step out and say, God, I want to abound in love, you can trust God is working in you to produce that. So it's a gift, it's a work of God. We see later in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 9, Paul's going to come back to this. He says, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you. You're booming. You yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. That's indeed what you're doing. 
um, to all the brothers throughout Macedonia, but we urge you, brothers, do this more and more. Guys, true Christian maturity is not defined by the preciseness or complexity of your theology. Did you guys catch that? I'm going to read it again. True Christian maturity is not defined by the preciseness or the complexity of your theology. It's measured by the character and quality of your love. You can be a great theologian and loveless. And that's a tragedy. There's no such thing as loveless Christianity. This is why Jesus, if you were to go spend time, like just read the Gospels, and like, okay, like what am I going to learn about following Jesus? You'll hear something like this in John 13, 34 and 35. He'll say, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He doesn't mention your theology, and I'm not downplaying that. But if what you know about God does not impact your heart and, and, and hit your hands and your feet and your life, they don't. They know you're my disciples? Let me ask you this. How will people in Medford know that you're a follower of Jesus? Like what characteristics of your life are going to set you apart from the next person beside you? It is a love that is shaped by Jesus. A new commandment I give you, love as I have loved. It's not that the commandment was new. It was Jesus was now saying, look at my life and now go imitate that. This is what I want to produce in my disciples. It is the love of Christ. And then what does he say here? As he's talking about this love abounding. He says, God, make it increase. Abound in love for one another and for all. He gives, so we have this. Increase, increase, overflow, and then we have an expansion. It's a love for the brothers and sisters. I think what he's talking about in that first category is love in the church. Like this is now your new family, and you are to love each other well, and then for everyone. So an expansion that starts here and spreads to the city. I'll when we talk about, some of you have been through our seven pursuits of a disciple. One of the, the characteristics of a disciple that we're hoping to cultivate is this, is that you serve with intentional love. Where? In the home, in the church, and in our city. So if you want to pray about, hey God, where should I abound in love? You should start praying, God, in my home, with my spouse, with my roommates, with my children, with my siblings. God, help me to abound in love. If you want to know, like, where does, like, practical Christianity hit the road? It's in the home. And in the home, with people that are familiar to us, are some of the people that we can be the harshest to. We need God's work in our homes, in the church, 
we look around and we see brothers and sisters in Christ, those in your community group, and it's a call. God, would you help me to abound in love? Would you help me to die to myself and show tangible love to those that are near me? And then it's in our city. I mean, you guys have heard us talk about bless this year. We, we want to be a blessing to our city. What does B stand for? Begin with prayer. What's L stand for? Listen. What does E stand for? Eat with others. What does S stand for? Serve in the other S. Share. This is it. it it's urgent love that sends us out. It's the, the heartbeat of blessing my neighbors, my coworkers. I like thinking about where I live, learn, work, and play. I want to go and bless. When we love this way, we are most like our Heavenly Father. If you want a couple of verses to meditate on this week, go look at Matthew 5, 43 through 48, and Luke 6, 32 through 36. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. God is kind and to the ungrateful and the evil, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. When we love this way, we're reflecting the image of God to our city. So we trust that God is sovereign over Satan's schemes. We overflow. Let me just pause here for a second. What's the like antonym of overflow? What would you say? Or give me a word. What come, what's coming to mind? Dry? What, what's that? Drought? Empty? Lord, help there not be a drought of love in my home. Lord, may it not be said there's a drought of love in our church. And God, if people in Medford say anything about me or our church, it ought to be those people love extravagantly. They're not withholding love. Look, I mean, just go with the imagery. You got a cup that's overflowing, which means it's going to spill over on anybody that you spend time with. So don't go overflow with love and go hide up in a cave. Go overflow and go get around people who don't know Jesus. The third truth. And this one's a little complicated, so I need you guys, are you guys with me? Say, I'm with you. Say, I'm still with you. Let's go. This one's a little complex. I need you to, to hang in here with me. This third one is this, your love for others results in a holiness that makes you blameless at Jesus' return. I'm going to read it again because we're going to have to unpack this. Your love for others results in a holiness that makes you blameless at Jesus' return. This is the so that in verse 13. Why is he praying, God, make our way? Paul's like, I still want to get there. I know I've sent Timothy, but I want to get there and supply what's lacking in your faith, even though you're booming. And now I'm praying, abound, overflow in love, so that this might happen. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before God and Father at the coming of the Lord Jesus. In other words, the return, Jesus is, hey, newsflash. 
Those of you that are like new to Jesus or you're like, man, I'm, I'm a not yet believer. But I'm exploring. Jesus came once. They killed him. He rose from the dead and he's coming back. When he comes back, that's the consummation of this whole story. He's going to make all things new. All this sin that we wrestle with, the brokenness of the world, he's making it all right. So, so we're all going to give an account to him. Every single one of us will have to stand before him. That's what's in view here. And, and we're going to spend some time in the latter part of 1 Thessalonians talking about more, about the second return of Jesus. So just hang on. There'll, there'll be more coming in future weeks. But here's what I want to unpack for us. Paul seems to be making a strong connection between this abounding in love and these words blameless and holy and heart strengthened when Jesus returns. Like, what is that connection? That's what I want to try to help us understand. What's the connection between those two? The first, like, just helping us think about it, your love for others results in a holiness. That's what I want you to think about. That, that's what I said there. Your love results in a holiness. So I, I think there's a strong connection between love for God and others and holiness. Like, it's almost as if the heart and essence of holiness is love. We will abound in holiness when we grow in love for all people. I mean, like, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's go to Romans 13. I got on the screen here. Romans 13, 8 through 10. This is Paul in, a, in another one of his letters. He says this. He says, owe no one to anything except what? Love. Love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So you have, like, what do you owe? You owe love. Love is equal to the fulfillment of the law. And then he quotes some of the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery because that's not loving. You shall not murder. That's not loving. You shall not steal. That's not loving. You shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. If you abound in love, you're going to keep God's commands because his commands flow out of love for neighbor. Let me share another one with you. Galatians 5. Galatians 5, beginning in verse 13, Paul writes, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is a strong connection between your love overflowing for God and others and you becoming holy. And so that's why I say your love for others results in a holiness that makes you blameless at Jesus' return. What do I mean by this? A holiness that makes you blameless at Jesus' return. Now I want to hit pause and I want to ask another question and I'm going to come back to that. You guys still with me? Say, I'm still with you. Let's go. What's necessary for someone 
to enter into heaven, gain eternal life, and be found acceptable to God. In other words, what has somebody got to do to be saved? What's that? Believe in Jesus. So we know this has to do with Jesus. That's a great answer. (laughs) I've got some good news and bad news for you guys. When we talk about holiness and blameless, if I were to stand before God right now and he were to ask me, John, why should I let you into heaven? Do you know what my answer is? I'm guilty. You should not let me in. I've not kept your commands. I love myself a ton. I've tried to love my neighbor a little, but there's all kind of sin in my heart, in my thoughts, my affections, and my actions. You shouldn't let me in. But your word says that Jesus is not the case. He did not sin. He was perfect in affection and obedience. And when he died on the cross, your word says, he died for me. But God demonstrates his love for us. While I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. And you said that if I would confess that I'm a sinner and believe in Jesus, you would give me eternal life. The only reason you should let me in is because Jesus died for me. He's paid for every single one of my sins. That's why you should let me in. You guys follow me? That is the gospel. Jesus died. He rose from the dead. And my fa- it's Jesus. It's the only answer. Thank you, Sam. It's the only means. Like, don't fumble around like, man, I, the food pantry or... What I did this on the PTA at school or PTO or like we try to like these are like your your good is not going to outweigh the bad. Your good never takes away the sin in your life. Just own it. I don't. You shouldn't let me in. And Paul says this in First Thessalonians five nine through ten. He he says, "For God has not destined us for wrath." but to obtain salvation through who? Our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. The focus of this text is something different. Here's what Paul is saying. Actual love for others flows from faith in the gospel of Jesus And it confirms that I really do belong to him and don't need to be ashamed when he returns. That's what Paul's asking. Blameless here does not mean sinless perfection. He's going to later say in a different book in Titus, an elder must be blameless above reproach. I am not sinless blameless. Lee can affirm that. Amen. Well, what does it mean to be blameless? 
Paul's not saying that they would be, like, even Paul, look at Paul. In, in, in 1 Thessalonians, Thessalonians chapter 2, I get going too fast sometimes. Verse 10 of chapter 2, what does Paul say? You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct. Paul said, I was holy, I was righteous, and I was blameless. Does Paul need Jesus? Yes. Look, if perfection were the goal, why would he be praying? Would you make their love abound? There'd be no need to pray for that. So like, you and I will not be perfect until we meet Jesus. We're going to struggle and wrestle with sin until we get there. But if you've truly experienced the love of God, you can't help but love others. And if there's no love in your life, you should not have any confidence standing before Jesus. What he's saying here is as you abound in love, it, it strengthens your heart that when you go to meet Jesus, that you're going to be welcomed in, not because of your good deeds, but because your good deeds show evidence that God has changed your heart. Real, practical, lived-out love is founded on the gospel, and it confirms that I'm really in Christ. And so this is why a similar prayer in Philippians 1, Paul says this, It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And so as we wrap up, I want to give you the point. And it's a challenge. In light of this text, I want to ask you to do this this week. Every day. Ask God daily to produce in you an abundance of love for everyone around you. I dare you to pray that every day starting right now.